Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. My daughter Ellie and I, a few years back, stumbled upon a show, and this show was, uh, was called Nailed It. And the premise of the show was such that uh, they would bring in three different sets of contestants or three different contestants, and they would show them a cake or some type of baked item that they were to make as best to their ability. Now, these people were not professional bakers. They were sometimes amateurs, like very amateur. And uh, so there was some comedy involved in that they would uh, try and make this cake look like the thing that they were supposed to. So there's a couple examples I have on the screen. The thing on the left is what it was supposed to be. The thing on the right, I think that, is that a Pokemon or something? I don't know. It looks very strange. Go ahead to the next one princess on the left and i don't know what's going on on the right that's like a from a horror movie or something i don't know and then the final one this was my favorite the dog and then is that a run over dog did that get flattened by a semi like what happened there see the truth is this morning sometimes we live in a world where we have to account for the difference between the ideal and the actual between what things should look like and what they actually are few years back, uh, actually it was during COVID, right? And we had described or decided that we were going to build a patio and some of you actually helped me build it. And I remember my wife coming out to me the final day that I had uh, set aside to kind of do this patio and do all this work. And she just calmly come to, came to me and she knew I was frustrated. She said, it's okay. It doesn't look like what it looked like in your head. And that's fine. Maybe you've had that experience, you've set out on some project, and there was a difference between the thing you thought you were building or doing or constructing or working on and how it actually turned out. See, the way we want things to, to be and the way things actually are are different, aren't they? And sometimes we know the ideal thing which we pursue, and yet we actually arrive at something quite Different. This morning, as we come to Exodus chapter 28 and 29, we're going to see is the description of the ideal priest in chapter 28, as we describe the garments that this priest puts on, and then the actual priest that's purified and sanctified through sacrifices and accounting for his own sinfulness of Aaron and others. Here's our big idea this morning. See, Jesus uniquely stands between God and his people as priest. There's one ideal priest this morning. Eventually, what our plan is this morning is we'll go through chapter 28. We'll see uh, an ideal priest in in the kind of robes, the description of this garb that this priest is going to wear. And then in chapter 29, we'll talk about the actual priesthood in Exodus 29 and what had to be Uh, the sacrifices that had to be made to purify Aaron and his sons to be able to serve in this capacity. And then we'll kind of return back toward the end and see with New Testament eyes, this concept of priesthood. What does this look like? How do we fulfill it? How does Christ fulfill it? How do we understand it? I want to start in Exodus chapter 28. And I want to start with a little background 
See, as we've kind of come through the book of Exodus, we've seen uh, the Israelites cry out to God as they're in this foreign land in Egypt. They are uh, harshly enslaved there. They cry out to God at the end of Exodus chapter two, God hears and he knows and he remembers. And so he raises up a deliverer, Moses. Moses comes and he delivers the people as he submits to God's miraculous plan as God shows his power in Pharaoh and in Egypt. Exodus 15 is the summation of all of that as Moses kind of sings, the the Lord has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. And from there, we see Israel kind of trek out from the nation of Egypt and make its way to Sinai. Sinai, they're standing at the base of the mountain, and God calls them to purify themselves, to uh, take uh, a few days to consecrate themselves because he's going to give them the law. And he does this, and in Exodus 19, he gives this statement. He says, you, that's Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And he tells them all about how to be consecrated. God shows up on the mountain. He gives them 10 commandments. He gives them these laws that we're reading now. But the point is that Israel was to become a nation or God was to have a nation of priests dedicated to himself. What's shocking this morning then is that when God unrolls this concept of priesthood, he limits it to this very particular people. We'll kind of uncover exactly why that is in a little bit. So verses 1 through 5 of chapter 28, we see these garments introduced. Read with me in Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron, and your, bro- Aaron your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak with, uh, to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. See, there's a basic program outlined here. Moses is to bring Aaron and his sons as priests near to the tent of meeting, and Moses is to direct others to create these priestly garments. Verse 2, they're to be made for glory and for beauty. They're supposed to be made by skillful volunteers. In verse 3, probably not the nailed-it people that we saw uh, they are to make particular items outlined in verse 4. This guy's styling. I mean, just think about, uh, as my son would say, his drip in verse 4. These are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe. I mean, there's a sash and a turban involved. What else do you want, right? So Moses is to collect these materials in verse 5, which we already saw that last week, the collection of materials from the people of Israel. Now let's talk about these garments. I don't have any pictures for you, so you're just going to have to use your imagination. First, we're going to describe this ephod. This ephod was to be made of blue and purple yarn. Now remember last week when they were building the tabernacle, it also was blue and purple. So these Priests are almost like matching the tabernacle, not so that they can hide like chameleons or whatever. What it shows is that they are actually a part of this whole sacrifice system that God is creating. 
that it's one piece, tabernacle, priests, they work together to bring God near to his people. And this ephod was supposed to have two shoulder pieces that connected, and they were supposed to have these two precious stones right on the shoulders. And on each of the precious stones were engraved the names of the Israelite clans, right? So you had Reuben and Simeon and uh, Judah and all of these different names on the shoulder pieces. And that's not it. If you didn't have enough bling on the shoulder pieces, there was bling on the breast piece of judgment in verses 15 through 30, right? There was this metal piece that was there on their chest over the heart of the priest. And on that, there were these 12 precious stones, each engraved with the name of a tribe of Judah or a tribe of Israel, excuse me. Look at the description there in verses 29 through 30. It describes it. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them uh, to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart. When he goes before the Lord, thus Aaron's, uh, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You might be wondering, what in the world is the Urim and the Thummim? Guess what? If you have questions about that, you're in good company. It seems like most scholars don't have a direct understanding of what exactly this is. But we know from its usage throughout the Old Testament that this was kind of a way of like getting answers for what God wanted the kings of Israel to do. Uh, so we see examples of this in, in 1 Samuel 23, 9, or in 1 Samuel 30, where David uses the Urim and the Thummim to kind of ask for God's direction about what to do. It's also used uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament. But there's also this other thing called the robe of the ephod, in verses 31 through 35. This was a, a longer robe that went under the ephod. This was a, it was trimmed with bells and with embroidery of pomegranates. And verse 35 tells us that this piece is necessary so that the priest does not die, right? You want to pay attention to this one because it will kill you if you neglect it, right? Verses 36 through 39, the turban, coat, and sash, they're described. Uh, verses 36 and 37, you shall make a plate of pure gold, holy, uh, of pure gold and a grave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be a sign on the front of the turban. They walk in literally with the words, holy to the Lord, written on their forehead. Verse 39 kind of item, uh, briefly describes these coat, turban, sash, what they're supposed to be made of. And 40 through 43 kind of just says, these are for all the priests. Look at verse 40 with me. <clears throat> For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. See, the clothing then was for anointing, ordaining, and consecrating, according to verse 41, of Aaron and his sons. 
See, the idea was that uh, it's not about the person who fills the garment. The garment is meant to represent certain things that the Lord wanted in his presence at all times. I remember when I was in high school, I went on a missions trip to Mexico. And uh, it was a really hard mission trip. So we were at the beach one day and um, we were there. And and what would happen is uh, local people would come to the beach and they would buy bottles of like two liters of pop and they would, they would pour it into a sandwich baggie and sell it to you for a certain amount of money, right? So there you are. You have a sandwich baggie filled with cola and a straw stuck in it, and you're trying to drink out of this thing. And within about 0.5 seconds, it becomes as warm as the air outside, right? Okay, that was funnier in my mind when I was thinking about it. See, the point is that function necessitates form. Function necessitates form. There's a reason we have pop bottles. There's a reason they keep things cool and insulated, or at least better than a plastic bag would. It's the same reason you don't put motor oil in a shoebox, or you don't plant a lemon tree in Arctic soil. There's a place that's particular and a size and a shape that fits particular items. This outfit that is described here in Exodus 28 was to highlight what a priest should be. Its form is highlighting what function it had. Notice what our text says about these priests. The priest was to have the people of Israel on his heart in verses 12 and 30. These engraved stones and the priestly garbs on his shoulders and on his heart represent the care and concern symbolically that the priests were to have. They were supposed to bear the weight of these people. They were supposed to care for these people. It's not only that, this priest was to be holy to the Lord. It's literally embroidered on his forehead or placed on his forehead. This person was supposed to be dedicated to holiness. As they uh, ministered in the temple before the presence of God, they were not to entertain sinful thoughts or to kind of uh, cast aside what God had wanted them to do. In fact, uh, if we were to kind of fast forward to Leviticus 10, these two brothers, Nadab and Abihu, would actually offer strange fire before the Lord, and the presence of the Lord would come out and consume them because they disobeyed what God had told them to do. Third, the priest was to be directive for Israel as he was directed by God. This is the Umum, Urim, and the Thummim, right, that God had given them, that God wanted them to be able to direct his people as he As the priest heard from God, they would give direction to God's people. Note that God didn't give this power directly to Moses or to Miriam or to anyone else. He wanted his people to come to him for direction. And that was mediated by these priests. See, the upshot of all of this is that man needed to be all in to to be a priest. He couldn't just dabble in priesthood. He needed a whole life commitment. This slightest misstep could cost him or someone else their life. If It could have massive implications for the nation of Israel and for their families. To be clear this morning, there's no one fit to serve as priests in the nation of Israel. This morning we we talk uh, a little bit about the priesthood, why we don't continue the priesthood, why uh, some traditions have priests that we confess our sins to, and why we don't have priests that we don't confess our priests to or our sins to. 
Because the truth is this morning that if I were to hear your confession, although there are patterns in the New Testament where we're called to confess our sins to one another, the truth is I'm as sinful as you are. I can take you around to various locations in this very building where I have fallen short of God's righteous standard. It reminds us this morning that there is only one person who can fulfill what's described here in Exodus 28. So what we see next then is fitting in chapter 29. Because if this is what the ideal priest should be, how do we make Aaron and his sons fit into that? Chapter 29 lays out a process of consecration. In fact, look at verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. He goes on, take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillful woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. See, the first thing we're to collect all of these items, right? It's kind of like this... uh, this uh, you know list of things they were to go out and find. You're supposed to find unleavened bread, unleavened cakes, unleavened wafers, a bull, and two rams, a bucket of ice, a nine iron, and some butter rum lifesavers, right? There's this long list of items that are there for them to consecrate these priests. And for, or secondly, in verse 4, they were to be washed with water. The next thing that they are to do after they've gathered all these items is take Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they are to strip down, and they are to wash themselves. In fact, if we kind of go to the book of Numbers, it's not just that they wash themselves with water. They actually shave off the hair off of their bodies. They were to be consecrated with water, with washing. And then finally, they are to be dressed in these priestly garments in verses 6 through 9. Now, notice the bull and the ram actually have purpose. And what we see is these three, potentially four different offerings that are offered in verses 10 through 25. So God prescribes the string of offerings, each with a different purpose. And at the end of each section, these offerings are named. So we might see that they're named a sin offering or a food offering or a wave offering. So verses 10 through 14 describe this sin offering. Aaron and his sons will bring the bull before the tent of meeting, and they're going to lay their hands on it. And you're saying, why do they lay their hands on it? It's to symbolize the transfer of guilt over to this animal that's about to die for their sinfulness. 
And they were to kill the bull at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They were to slit its throat, to lay it down, and to carve it up in different ways so that they could take the blood and they could put it on the horns of the altar and then splatter some of the blood at the base of the altar. And then they were to take the fat and the liver and the kidneys and they were to burn them on the altar. And every other part of this animal was to go outside of the camp and be burned up. Verses 15 through 18 describe something similar. One of the rams is brought forward. Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the ram. They transfer their guilt over there. And they cut the ram up into sections and they wash its entrails and legs. And then they put the whole thing on the altar for a food offering, according to verse 18. Verses 19 through 25, the second ram is brought. Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the ram. They kill the ram. They spread the blood all over. The, they put it on Aaron's right ear and his right thumb and his right toe. You're saying, what in the world is that all about? It's to designate that when they hear from God, when they do the work, and when they go somewhere with their feet, all of this is to be consecrated. They were to be sanctified for God's purpose. And it wasn't just done to Aaron, it was done to his sons. And the remaining blood was thrown against the side of the altar. And then what they did is they took some of this anointing oil and they scraped some of the blood off the side and they smeared it together. And then they took it and they smeared it on Aaron's forehead and on some of the garments that were there to kind of sanctify and consecrate these things because God was holy and these things were to be consecrated for his holy purpose. Verse 22 through 25 describes the, the food offering to the Lord. The fat, the liver, and the kidneys of that animal are to be handed to the priests. It's set in the priest's hands along with these loaf of bread, of cake, and wafer in their hands, and they're waving it as a wave offering before the Lord. And all of this is to be burnt on the altar. Verses 26 through 34 describe something different. The breast and the thigh of the ram from Aaron's ordination were to be for him and for his household. This is food for these families of the priests. They are to take it and to use it. It's their perpetual due, according to verse 29. Verse 35 and 37 describe the priest's ordination. Look with me at 29, 35 through 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall, make pu or shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. I believe it's Leviticus describes this ordination process. And these priests have to stay in the tent of meeting for seven days. They don't leave. This is no light thing that's happening here. See, what happens is time and time again, we're just getting this description that for Aaron and his sons to serve God as priests, something has to die. Something has to be given up for Aaron and his sons' sins so that they can exist in the presence of God. The upshot of all of this well, we'll get there in just a second. See, there's a perpetual offering that Caleb read for us this morning, verses 38 through 44. This is what shall, you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, 
day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. Right? So every morning, they get up and they take this ram and they slaughter it and they lay it on the altar every single morning with these food offerings alongside. And every single evening, verse 41, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So chapter 28 told us, this is what a priest should be. He should have the concern of Israel on his heart. He should be holy to the Lord on his forehead. He should be directive with the people of, the, of Israel. And when Aaron and his sons couldn't do it, God had to kill a bunch of animals. Kind of looking forward to this sacrifice that was coming from Jesus. Verse 42 through 46, zero us in on some of the purpose of what this is all about. Look at verse 42, chapter 29. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there, Moses. This has to happen so I can speak to you, Moses, so that I can meet with you in the tent of meeting. Verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Other people will come, Moses. Verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. What's the purpose of all of this constructing of these garments and all of these sacrifices? What's the point? What's happening? God is highlighting. He's saying, if you want to dwell with me, if you want to be in my midst, if you want me to dwell with you, we need to go through this process of sanctifying these priests. They cannot serve me in their sinfulness. They cannot draw near to me. I will consume them in an instant. See, God's going to meet with Moses, verse 42, and he's going to see that he has done this consecrating work. Verse 44, I will consecrate. Aaron and his sons, I will consecrate. Verse 44b, so God is working to consecrate his chosen priesthood for his purpose. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Maybe you were in school or maybe you were a parent, but there's some school assignment that is assigned and little Timmy, who can barely hide, tie his shoes, shows up with the most immaculate project that's ever been created. He shows up, and it's like the dude can't hardly spell the word sun, but he shows up with this solar diagram that is immaculate and perfect, and you're saying, your mom and dad helped you with that. This morning, we talk about this priesthood. We needed someone else to come in and help us. We needed someone else to do the heavy lifting for us. 
And as we kind of look at this passage, this uh, kind of thought, this idea of this priesthood, we, we look at that with New Testament eyes that draws our attention to the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is described as our perfect high priest. I love that Ryan opened us with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. He and I both had the same thought from our, our community group discussions, but Hebrews chapter 4, just soak in the grace and mercy that the author of Hebrews describes. He says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I want to just highlight a few things that the author of Hebrews tells us about our perfect high priests and kind of compare it back to what we've just read in Exodus 28 and 29. First thing, Jesus has passed through the heavens This high priest didn't come from the realm of human beings. He was with God from before the foundations of the earth. He has existed in the presence of the Almighty forever. There is nothing about God the Father that he doesn't know. He is so intimately familiar with God and with the Spirit. He's passed through the heavens. He exists on the earth, or he existed on the earth. He was raised up to the Father's presence. Our great high priest knows the way. I love in John chapter 3 where Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. He's saying, if you you don't understand when I speak to you about earthly things, how are you going to understand when I speak to you about heavenly things? When I tell you the things I know about, How are you going to listen to me? Implication there is that Jesus knows about heavenly things. So he's unique, isn't he? He's unique because he's passed through the heavens. But he's not so unique that he doesn't know how to relate to us because what the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are. He existed in the flesh. He took on our humanity. He experienced what it is to be tired, what it is to be hungry, what it is to smell bad smells, rotten fish, B.O., whatever else it is. Our God has experienced all of those things. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. He's had experience like you have, Christian. He knows what it is to lose a loved one in death. He knows what it is to experience sickness and unhealth. He knows what it is to be rejected by friends and relatives. This high priest isn't just so far off from us who's passed through the heavens. He's experienced what you've experienced. He's experienced what I've experienced. Notice what he says that's so sweet, so good. He's in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was without sin. There's no priest in all the generations of Israel that could claim to be without sin. No priest could walk into the Holy of Holies without just an animal full of blood. Jesus could. 
Jesus could walk into the Holy of Holies. He could walk right into the presence of God. He could split the veil. He could come back and he could place himself beside the Ark of the Covenant because that's what he's been doing from eternity past and will do to eternity future. See, this God who's passed through the heavens, who took on our flesh, who knows our weakness, he exists behind the curtain. In fact, that's where the author of Hebrews will go. And in chapter 10, he'll say, let's go with confidence behind the, the veil because of the blood of Jesus Christ. See, this great high priest has brought his own blood into the perfect heavenly tabernacle. And now he advocates for sinners like you and me on the basis of his own righteous blood spilled for us. That's why the author of Hebrews finishes with this statement in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How do we draw near? Is it by my righteousness? Is it by my cleaned up life? Is it by the thing that I've done? Is it because of the good works that I've performed? Is it because of a life of uh, given to God, consecrated to God? No, it's because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ that we draw near to the throne of grace. It's because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ that we receive mercy. It's because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ that we find grace to help in time of need. Christian, you are established before the throne of God, not by your righteousness, not by your good works, not by anything else but the blood of Jesus Christ poured out, spilled out for all of his people throughout all of eternity. You have a great high priest. And he speaks a better word than all of your sinfulness before the throne of his father. Let's get down to brass tacks this morning. Let's talk about this. When you tell a lie, when you fabricate a truth, when you try to cover up uh, the shame that you have within you through telling some dishonesty, the truth-telling life of Jesus splattered on the mercy seat so that you can come in with confidence. When you entertain that lustful thought, purity of Jesus' blood spread on the mercy seat. Not again, but it has been for all time. So that now you can be ushered in through the presence of God. When you say that angry word to your mother or father or son or daughter or dog or whatever it is, patient, loving blood of Jesus spread on the mercy seat so that you can come before the throne of God. Christian, we have a great high priest. If this were all that the New Testament had to say to us about what a priest is, we could walk out and be done and be greatly encouraged. There's another aspect here that we want to uncover. Last week, we told you that whatever... Christ has become in terms of temple, priest, sacrifice. Jesus fulfills all of those categories biblically. You also are a temple. You also are a priest. You also are a sacrifice. So this morning, you are a priest. 
1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, let's be clear here this morning. You are not a high priest. There's one high priest who sacrificed his blood so that we all can come into the presence of God. But what you are, you are one who stands in between God and man. You speak to God on behalf of man. You pray for unsaved relatives and neighbors and friends. But you also speak to your relatives and neighbors and friends on behalf of God. That's why he says, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. One of your jobs as a priest is to represent the God that we interface with, to speak on his behalf. See, this morning, I don't want us to be flippant about how special and unique this is. You remember when God spoke to Moses in Exodus 19. He said, I want to make you a nation of priests. Well, he has established that through the death and resurrection of his son. He has made for himself a nation of priests. This is why we don't confess confess to some special class of believers. We have direct access to the throne of God this morning. So you, Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a priest. You represent God to Man, you represent man to God in some form. I call you this morning to not take this lightly. It's part of us that just kind of wants to say, yeah, 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 I'm a priest. I get it. Jesus is my high priest. I'm a priest, whatever. To wrestle with this and say, what is it that God is doing in this world? And what niche do I face or what niche do I fulfill in that plan for the world? If I am a priest, a part of the nation of priests that God has made, a royal priesthood, what is it that he wants me to do? Isn't it so simple for us to just go about our workaday lives? We get up early in the morning, and we kind of rub our sleepy eyes, we take our shower, we go to work, we do our thing, we eat our lunch, we come back, we meet with our kids, we do our dinner, we go to bed. How is it that the priesthood that God has entrusted us to, how does that change that rhythm? Something worth considering, isn't it? See, there's a way of going about life that tells you that all of the blessing is in the things you do. You're blessed by the job that you keep. You're blessed by the kids that you have. You're blessed by the success or unsuccess or whatever else. You're, you're blessed in all of these things and these facilities or these ways that you facilitate that. I'm here to tell you that our true blessing is through our great high priest, our entrance into his presence through the blood of Christ and our subsequent sending out for God's purpose. Let's be people who exist purposefully as God's priests before the world.
pray to that end this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, in your grace, you have made us priests. Lord, we are astounded by this truth, this undeserved favor that you have granted to us, that now through the blood of Christ we draw near with confidence. We find mercy and grace to help. Lord, help us to articulate the excellencies of who you are to the world as we are called to be priests who stand in that space between you and your world. Help us to be those faithful priests who bring our supplications before you time and time again. Help us to be those priests that offer ourselves as living sacrifices before you. Pray, Lord, that as we consider the life of Jesus Christ, his shed blood to usher us into your presence, that we might draw near with confidence. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.